You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 28. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing work-life play by design with Aaron McHugh. We'll be covering how to optimize your life by adding play, how to stop keeping score if you really want to win, the power of developing craftsmanship, and flipping hardship upside down, and much, much more. Leadership is about vision. It's about creating a vision and sharing that vision with others in a way that inspires them to walk with you towards its fulfillment. Along the way, leaders encourage, motivate, guide, and even challenge people to bring out their best each and every day. And it's all done through conversations. That's what this show is about. Better conversations for better leaders. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, Sean Ryan. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Aaron McHugh. Aaron is a writer, podcaster, adventurer, and author of the best-selling book, Fire Your Boss, Discover Work You Love Without Quitting Your Job. He is mastering the art of living a sustainable work-life balance that consistently interweaves rhythms of play and adventure. That includes road trips in their 1974 VW bus, aka the Joy Bus, catapulting them into many father-daughter adventures together. Aaron works as an affiliate advisor for Aberkin, a division of McKinsey & Company, as a facilitator of transformation and an executive coach. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate it. I love your uh, New York City view back there. Oh, thank you. I, I wish it was a, a live view. It's uh, it's just wallpaper, actually. I, 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 my clients got tired of staring at a blue wall, and uh, <laughs> I thought I'd come up with something a little bit more interesting. And now people tell me it's easy to find my videos because oh, cool, kind of nice. pops out. So our yeah. state building to your left. Exactly. I know. I can kind of reach out and touch it. I'm I'm from upstate New York, so I get to at least have that homage, I think, to, to my hometown, although I live in uh, Charlotte. But you, you live in, if I remember, uh, Colorado Springs, right? I do. Yeah, right across from the Air Force Academy. So I love mountains and anything that's, yeah, anything that's mountains or ocean, but that's mountains are my home. Fantastic. And I understand, did you get caught up in, time-wise speaking, there was a, a quite a range of weather recently going from the 90s, maybe even 100 degrees down to snow weather did that did that did you get hit with that knowing the last two days and then it was 91 degrees and wildfires the day before it's a little it's a little yeah it's it's uh the wild west is true it is a reflection of the turbulent times that we live in i i think well i wanted to first of all um thank you and acknowledge you for the the amazing book fire your boss i i think you know you got Seth Godin on the front cover there, and and what 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 a great testimony for for anyone, and um, it, it's a fantastic read. It, it really is. It really is riveting. And so it? I have a bunch of questions I want to get into to ask about that, but I want to trace it back. So I think in the introduction you mentioned that there are there were three drafts, at least three drafts. You have the first one was a rant, and the last one ended up as more of a, a swan song. What was the inspiration really to even create this this work? Thanks for asking. I'm glad you enjoyed it too. That's fun. You know, I think it's easy to read the title and maybe assume that I was trying to sell books by picking some uh, provocative title and it actually wasn't that at all. So probably, let's just say more than a decade ago, I found myself in my place in my career, my family, my life, where I, I felt like I should be experiencing more joy. 
and more fulfillment and contentment that I was because there was enough things that were going right in my life and career that it felt like, why is there such a gap between my daily experience of my life and my work and what it looks like on LinkedIn? So at the time, I was in a really frustrating situation and I sat down on our back patio and knew I just had something to say. And what had happened is I had gone on a bike ride with a buddy of mine. And while we're on the bike ride, our kind of normal exchange was I'd rant about work and life and he'd rant about work and life. We'd take turns. Well, this time I actually said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fire my boss. And remember us both laughing because I went on to say, like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but this individual, which at the time, unfortunately, I was blaming and holding responsible for a lot of my pain they're going to, I'm going to get them out of my way. And I don't know how, but I will. Well, the irony of it too, was that that was like, um, obviously that's very difficult to do in any situation. So um, I sit down on the back patio. I pen out this kind of draft of how did I get here and how do I chart a course for a future that I don't yet like a dream, a far off place, you know, some Neverland. <laughs> Um, so that was the very beginning. And in that, what happened was then over the course of those 15 years or so, 12 years, I kept living into these questions of what, what, how could you actually do that? How could you actually move from fear to freedom, from compartmentalize to wholehearted, from um, rule follower to heretic? How could you begin to actually shift that? Well, those are easy things to say and really, really challenging things to live and lead and live out. So that became kind of the, I don't even know, like almost like the soundtrack of my life for about 15 years to begin to explore what might that look like. So back to your root question, the reason I mentioned in the intro, this is the third time I've written the book, is the first time I was on the back patio and I sat down and penned this out and just became a little ebook. Um, PDF. The second time I took a crack at it about five years later, and I was like, I think I have some more things to say about this and wrote it into a self-published version. And then now here, this published version distributed through publisher and, you know, um, in bookstores everywhere. Then that this time I sat down the third time, I talked to my editor and I told him, I said, I need to write this introduction. It was the last thing to, to write. And I said, I really don't know what to put. Like, I think I've said everything I have to say in the book itself. And I said, if I was just honest, what I would say is, this is the third time I've written this book. I'm actually tired of it. I've almost quit a thousand times, but I knew you were out there and I knew you needed a lifeline. And that's why I did this for you. And he said, write that, make that the intro. I'm like, okay, great. That's what I'll do. So that's what you read. Exactly. That was like almost verbatim. So you, I, I can tell when you, when you do write a book, you get to that point where you do start to like hate it. <laughs> That's yeah. how you know it's done. Like you're, you're on that. Okay. We need to finally just get it out there and do yeah. that. So, well, it sounds like it took a long time. The evolution was there and you really put your heart and soul into it. Um, and, and thank you for writing it. And I think it sounds like the constraints that you had when writing that, cause you say in the book, even in the title without quitting your job, because really what's happening, I think, as part of it is you mentioned the word responsibility, that I'm not going to blame my boss. Because right. you also say in the book later on, wherever you go, there you are. 
you still are going to show up. And you actually mentioned going through several different iterations of your career and your stuff still showed up. So yeah. if we don't have that life balance, that work-life play balance, which I know you also say is a myth. What, what does that mean to you? Because we hear that sometimes that there is no such thing as work-life balance, but, but what does it mean to you when you personally say that the work-life balance concept is really a myth? Similar to the fire your boss core idea, many years ago, I started picking at this question of what does it mean to have a work-life balance? And no doubt, like an important uh, part of your life to have some degree of balance. And what, however, what I realized was that culturally, that's like a brand new um, phrase in the last, call it 50 years of our culture. And we're moving, as a culture, we're moving from just survival-based living, and we're now in this, um, what would it look like to kind of optimize our living? For most of the Western world, we're not in um, Maslow's hierarchy of need of food, clothing, and shelter as our base level needs. There are lots of people that that is their reality. But for you and for I and for many listening, that's probably not. So we're then faced with new challenges which is what does it look like to optimize the opportunity that we have in our life to maximize the impact and create the highest value contribution that we can in the life that we have for the years that we're entrusted to live. And so for me, then this work-life balance idea was like kind of an off the shelf of like, great, I'll just borrow that and then just figure out how to apply that to my life. And so then what I realized, though, is this idea of balance, I just found repeatedly, I felt like I was failing. And what it came down to was this idea of like somehow my family at the time, you know, three kids, they were probably all under the age of 10 or 12 at the time. Uh, one of our daughters was in a wheelchair and severely handicapped and special needs. And, you know, our marriage was, everything was intense. Our marriage was intense. My work was intense. So my home life, my work life, I worked in startups and that was very do or die. You know, did we get the check in this month or not? Can we make payroll to, you know, do we have enough money for groceries? Um, and it was just like, I realized balance. This is really, this is what I'm going to try to achieve. Some perfect reminds me of the teeter totter as kids when you would get on it, the seesaw, some people call it. And then you get two people of equal weight and you try and get it balanced to stop in the middle. It was so hard, you know, or you get two scales where it's like this much weight on this side, and this much weight on the other side. I found that just really frustrating. So what my, you know, relationships are all happy and everybody's well, my work's perfectly happy and well, like it was, I found lopsidedness all the time. And so what I started asking was, is that really the objective? to try and figure out how to get everything lined up in equal balance of pull and tug. And I'm like, I, I'm not very good at it. Maybe people can do it. And then the other thing when I noticed was that so often what work-life balance means is make sure your wife and kids are happy, your boss, you're happy, your company is happy, your career is in a good trajectory. And then the other secret part that never gets said is, and find a way for yourself to live with less because you're so busy giving and doing in service of others. And so for me, most of the time that up until, you know, the last probably handful of years, I just spent a lot of time around men, uh, whether friend groups or other missions I was part of, 
less so about women. So I just heard a lot about men's stories of leading their families and then these organizations. And so what I found is when I started asking questions about well, what do you do for yourself? When everything else is in balance, what about you? Oh, well, you know, I, I run on Tuesdays or I play softball in the summer or, you know, they're, they're pretty small and there's a season for that. But I was curious, what, where is play and adventure? Because the people I knew when I was 20, um, lots of us had stuff going on that was adventurous and interesting. And so I started asking some different questions about what might it look like to bring in two concepts. One, how do we bring adventure back into our life and play as a way of living, not as isolated to vacations? And secondly, then what if we could look at rhythm as an everyday ebb and flow versus in categories of of, or buckets is how I tried to live. Was my family hemisphere, is that all in balance and everybody's well? You know, then I'll get to, and it felt like I was always trying to manage my life versus trying to look at what if every day, how how could I live in a rhythm in such a way that was life-giving where play is part of my life, relationships are part of my life, in my work, my work, my family, it's all like in this kind of ball of twine, you know, this beautiful mess um, integrated together. So it's really more about integration than about category management. And that's the big shift for me is becoming wholehearted in such a way where I can be integrated in all that I am and do versus in these categories of work-life balance and some harmonious, you know, equilibrium. Thank you. And, and the name of the podcast, of course, is Work, Life, Play. So for you, you try not to see them as different buckets that need to be filled in compartmentalized times, but how do I integrate them? Are those, I don't know if you refer, they're not buckets anymore, right? They're just aspects or dimensions of your life. And it sounds like, do you try to fulfill those values each day? How, or am I thinking it too traditional with the compartmentalization? No, I think it's great. Um, I'll just show you. So for video folks that are seeing, you know, the, the logo work life play has our bus in the middle and then it has the true North um, uh, in the compass. It's very intentional. that There's no periods on that. There's no commas. It's not work comma work period play, you know, et cetera. And that was very intentional all along. And so the reason the reason I've been picking at this is because I've struggled with it. It was much easier to, in the category of work, try and keep everything in the box and then, okay, great. My wife called, let me step out. I'll go talk to her. I'll find out what's happening in my life category. And then I'll step back into work and then colleague will say, Hey, you know, how you doing? Yep. Fine. Don't worry about it. Let's get back into this box. And so I lived that way for a long time. And what I've discovered is that when I think of it as being uh, fragmented as a human, as a person, as a leader, and then the way I was living my life versus integrated. And so for me, the category uh, framing of work-life play is really just an invitation of, so life includes, you know, family and relationships and finances and play can be adventure and play can be like playing with your puppy can be playing hopscotch and 
chess, the key about play is about, it's a, not about keeping score. And so much of our life is over-programmed and over-scheduled. And then often we're keeping score. And that was true for me for a long time. I was doing things where I said I would come home like bloody and muddy because I went on a mountain bike. But I had a watch. I checked in on Strava. I plotted it in a spreadsheet. And I was keeping score. Now, I had fun while doing it. And it was adventurous. But it didn't have the the essential ingredients about really renewing me at a spirit level of just being at play at rest at ease for the sheer joy of doing it. And what I find in our modern culture, and especially with executives that I work with a lot is just play is really isolated to vacations or never. Does, and this may be a personal experience, or have you found with the people that you work with that when they let go of keeping score, that they're better able to be in the flow and really immerse themselves into that state? Yeah, John, exactly. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of research done around, um, even in uh, Animal Kingdom, how play is a necessary um, element of um, creativity of just being like what I call is like when my eight-year-old gets um, gets to make all the choices, you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, then it makes it where all of a sudden my, um, I have like a overly developed responsibility gene. Um, so that when I live out of that place, then play is not nearby for me. When, um, when my inner eight-year-old and again, it's for me about integration, about those two becoming friends, then the more I can live from that place, then back to your question of like flow and creativity and possibility. And then all of a sudden other things become, um, yeah, accessed. Greg McEwen wrote a book called Essentialism. And one of the things that he talked about is he has actually has a chapter on play and how play is the antidote of stress because it's rooted in this not keeping score and just you're being you're exploring and you're in a creative state which then can lead to our more flow states which ultimately we, we all know unlocks a lot more possibility than we're just in a tight gripping management of our life approach so it sounds a little paradoxical that the more you let go of the outcome the more able you are to actually achieve it we sure have a fighting chance of getting somewhere, <laughs> right? And I think that's the thing is that when we look at our life, like, and I struggle with this, this is not, um, I think that's something I just want to make sure each time I have conversations like this is I have not figured this out. Um, I am, I am on the trail. I am curious as well. And I am exploring what could this look like? And I'll be 49, you know, early next year. And I feel way further ahead than I was down this trail. I've explored a lot of territory and I feel like I have so far to go. And when I have setbacks and kind of upsets in my own journey, I can feel discouraged of like, man, I'm supposed to be the guy who knows what play is like. How come I'm so heavy, you know, heavy burdened? Um, and stress today. And I go back to, but you know what? The difference is 
I'm able to recognize it sooner. I'm able to recognize it. I have awareness and I have recovery practices to adjust and to get myself back into a place heading in a direction that I want to be on. And so I find that course correction is really a lot of this, the art of living isn't about getting it right. It's about learning to be aware, to be conscious of our choices that we're making, and then to be actively engaged in a direction that we want to travel towards things that we desire and outcomes we desire and being really good at making course corrections when we get off track, because all of us will along the way. You know, I think when I think about your book, many, not many, but I don't know about percentage wise, but a lot of the quotes, the intro quotes for the the books came from movies and which is great. That's how we bond in our society sometimes is doing movie quotes and that kind of thing. The, The first chapter of course is about the conversation between Neo and Trinity in the matrix. And he wants to know the answer. And she responds by saying some of the fact is it's the question that drives us. What's the question that's driving you right now at this stage of your life? Yeah, great question, John. I've been reading a book by Walt Harrington, and he was a Washington Post reporter for a number of years. Is a, I'm not sure if he's English or literature professor now at um, Champaign Urbana um, in uh, outside Chicago. But he wrote a book, and it's actually called um, Acts of Creation is the name of the title. And it's about craftsmanship. Um, I'm really curious about what has me questioning kind of the what would it look like to live into? So what's the question that drives me as the, as uh, Trinity said is, I, one of the questions I'm asking is, am I, a, where am I a craftsman? And where am I not yet? what would it mean? Where do I want to really double down? And what would that require of me? And so for instance, being um, an expert or being really gifted at something are not, they're not the same as a craftsman and a craftsman. So the 10,000 hours rule that a lot of us have heard of, it takes 10,000 hours to be really, you know, exceptional at it. And it has a big jump and there's all kinds of research about that and books that have popularized that, popularized that idea. Um, let's say that all being true, a craftsman, there's never a finish line. A craftsman is fiercely committed to the craft and never feels like he or she arrives at some, you know, advertised place of achievement or arrival, or there's always another part. And where that comes to life for me is uh, last spring, I was listening to Stephen King's book called On Writing. And I want to say at the time, it was probably late 90s or so that he wrote that. And I listened to it on audio, read by him, and really fascinating like definitely a modern day craftsman. And when you actually look at his craft and his rhythms of living, 
his way of approaching his craft, his fierce belief about how it should be and shouldn't be and those kinds of things. So when I compare myself, and I don't mean as a writer specifically, but just categorically, if that's a craftsman that I have now interacted with, where am I in relation to that? And then where's my passion meter in relation to, do I actually want to become a craftsman? Or are there places that I am okay with just being okay? You know, or the 10,000 hours, like, yeah, I'm pretty good, but I'm not a craftsman. Let's make the distinction. The thing that intrigues me about craftsmanship is that it has such a soulful steadiness to it that I wonder if there'd be some of the questions that I get entangled with sometimes, like, does this matter? And maybe I should just quit. Might I be able to move beyond those if I was actually fiercely committed as a craftsman? Would some of those questions nag me less, I wonder? It's a really great question. And how do you decide which areas to have that level of commitment to, to go for it and dive in and become that, not just an expert, but become a true craftsman? Do you have that answer or is that something? I don't know. Still... Yeah, that's just my question. That's my, <laughs> you know, I know, um, do you know Yvonne Chouinard who founder of Patagonia? Do you know that Patagonia better not know. Uh, okay, yeah. 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 So um, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia and then another company um, called Black Diamond is what we know it as. It's uh, climbing equipment and all this stuff. So Yvonne Chouinard talks about in his book, Let My People Go Surfing, about, and he's probably in his 70s now. Um, so Patagonia was privately held, uh, highly profitable company, very soulful in their intentions about who they are as a company and how they operate in the world, environmentally, how they care for people, et cetera. And one of the things I love about he talks about is that he says he's a really good B player at most things, meaning he's not an A player. So um, the Michael Jordan of basketball, he's saying like, I'm not, I'm not that in anything I do. I'm not that as a surfer. I'm not that as a climber. I'm not that as a, I'm a B player. I'm a B player ice climber. I'm a B player. And so he kind of goes through this list and says, but I'm okay with being a B player because the level of effort required in order for me to become the A player, the Michael Jordan in one discipline, I'm not willing to put in the gap, you know, to here I am today is here's what it would take to be the Michael Jordan. So I think as just examples, call those like more metaphors. If Michael Jordan is a craftsman in basketball, if Tiger Woods is a craftsman in golf, et cetera, then um, the gap between a B player who can be really, really good and put in the 10,000 hours and a craftsman, that's a pretty big gap. So I think the question I've been asking is where am I comfortable being a really solid, steady B player? And then are there areas where I would prefer to go ahead and commit to craftsmanship, which may not mean I'm a standout Michael Jordan, but it may mean that with that fierce tenacity, I commit to it over the long haul. And that's some of the, I don't know. I'm, well, I'm playing with that. It sounds like if you tie the idea that you thought you mentioned earlier about not keeping score, that the, the intention then to be the craftsman Michael Jordan 
is not to keep score, but to be the best you can be and find flow, to find that being focused and being present and being in the path, because that's the exciting part. You, know, you mentioned in your book uh, that really it's, it's a shame not to be engaged. You know, you mentioned the Gallup polls, which have shown for the last 20 years that disengagement in the employee uh, United States workforce is around two thirds and has been for quite a long time. And yet most of our lives is done at work, right? More more than half of our live waking lives are occurring at work and yet we're not showing up. And so you mentioned repeatedly, I love this idea of don't settle, don't settle, don't settle. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't hear it that third time, I'm saying it again, I think you said it before, right? Don't settle. Um, why is it that people, if, if this issue has been around for so long, where mm. are we failing as leaders that's leading, leaving people not stepping up? Not that they have to be the A player, but to be their best and be the best B player, because there is that huge gap and it may yeah. not be worth it for everyone to be the A player, but to show, at least show up and be part of the game. Where I would start with that, John, is back to that question of engagement. And for our friends listening today, I'm going to just speak directly to you guys, is your engagement is your responsibility. You own it. There are factors outside of your control that impact your engagement, your inspiration. So if you work for an inspiring company or an inspiring boss, um, you create, uh, you do inspiring work, that's great. However, if you work for a not inspiring company, a not inspiring boss, then you're still responsible for finding ways to be inspired yourself. So fundamentally, the engagement, I think it's a, there's a poll that John's referring to is by Gallup. And annually it comes out and it's a global poll and it's about the kind of, it's a pulse check of the global workforce. And what we know is that engagement and focus equal creativity and flow we talked about earlier, which equals impact because the things that we create in the world, the value we create in the world is made by humans. Now we use tools like computers and <laughs> manufacturing plants, et cetera, but they're humans that drive these inventions. So what they're trying to do is take a pulse check on how much of yourself are you bringing to work every day? And this poll has been checking for, I don't know, 25 years. And what they forget is to ask a different set of questions is, where do you find hope? Now, if hope is in management, um, mantras, you know, corporate objectives, uh, your paycheck, those are all great things. But when the road gets steep, rocky, challenging, muddy, <laughs> When there's a pandemic, there's things that happen in life that make that where it's super frail and fragile. And then as a result, we as humans go into this choice of we can go to apathy, we can go to numbness, we just numb out, we can go to thank God it's Friday, we can go to uh, white knuckling our way, we can go to disengagement, we can go to bitterness. And what I advocate for is it's not okay because those are human conditions and that we as humans, that's not what we're here to do. What we're here to do is to live wholeheartedly from a place of hope and love and grace and peace and mercy and patience. Well, that's on us. We have to find that gear in us. And that has to be rooted in something that's greater 
than just the, our experience of what work's about. And then work in exchange becomes a place we invest all of our talents. Now it should be mutually beneficial. Our employers, our companies, they should be um, contributing to us and we should be contributing to them. And it doesn't always work like that. So then we can then cross our arms and check out and say, I'm not gonna play their game. And then we both lose. So the company loses, uh, the productivity of our workforce loses and we lose as humans. It impacts us relationally. It impacts our health negatively. Or we can say, I'm gonna go a different way. And I'm gonna find a way to learn to lead myself in such a way that I'm gonna find a reason to get out of bed today and tomorrow and the next day that's not dependent on my circumstances. It's not dependent on my paycheck. It's not dependent on the accolades I do or do not receive. And then, then we become unstoppable because then wherever we work, we're investing our whole selves. And that is just the compound effect of that is unstoppable. So it isn't about building a global machine of the workforce. It's about us enhancing the experience of our lives and what we create with the energy of our lives in this arena called work. So in, in that sense, all of that responsibility, which is I, I think part of the message behind fire your boss is taking responsibility as an individual. So and thank you for challenging the presupposition of my question, which was, you know, how do we as leaders fail? And we're failing if we're assuming it's our responsibility. We can support, we can have that exchange of value, but in the end, it's about empowering the individual to step up. I think going big picture on a lot of the concepts that you've already shared so far, you mentioned the word awareness, responsibility, consciousness, we've talked about flow. It seems very, very Zen, very Eastern, being <laughs> mindful and and even spiritual. W would you would you agree with that? Is, is spirituality oh. important in, in your message as well? Yeah, for sure. So for me, um, I have a deep, deep, deep spiritual life. Um, I love God, and it's it's the foundation of of my life. And so I have deep roots in every in anything and everything I do. What I choose to do in the message that I offer and the work that I do in the world is just make sure that that is really clear that that's who I am, but also not make it a, I don't know what I would call it, like a, um, a requirement, you know, that we have to have alignment and agreement in some way in order for the rest of it to be true. And so where I start is, hey, let's agree on these things that are true. And then, yes, by the way, I have a deep spiritual life and I'm happy to share anything that you might want to know about that. But it's not a prerequisite in order for us to get to the, the dozens of other things that I find that we can really quickly, I think, often and easily agree on. That's fair. Yeah. You know, circling back to a couple, you know, more personal questions, not, not necessarily around spirituality, but although spirituality may come into it in, in connection to something larger than self, you set big goals. I, I know not only you are a, a creator, a thought leader, but um, triathlon, you know, riding the 500 mile on uh, by mountain biking on the uh, Colorado Trail, going up and your, your goal is to do all 58 
14,000 footers in, in Colorado and, and you're making great progress in doing that. Yeah. What is it that drives you to do that? And do other people need to find you know, their goals like that as well? Can that help find, create meaning and purpose in their life? That's a good, good question. I guess I'm hanging on two things in, in, in your questions there is back to the, the spiritual piece. And I think it flows also into this meaning and purpose and goals. Um, be, because of the way I view the world is that God's life is in and through all things. And therefore God's life is active, like life, like life force, like um, active in and through all things and therefore in and through me and you. And so as a result, I, I look at, there's a guy, I love his works, Rob Bell, and he talks about how everything is spiritual is the phrase he'll use. And so everything is soaked in uh, a basic level spirituality or a, um, God's life is how I say it. And so for me, then I look at my life when it comes to like goals or objectives or things is like this kind of big giant experiment. Um, and sometimes it scares the crap out of me to be real honest, like the last couple of days I've had moments where I was like, man, I, what if I'm wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Not not about God, but like about like my life is an experiment. You know, my life is a, is a white canvas, um, you know, waiting to be painted and co-authored. And most days I don't live there, but I still have moments where it's like, what if, so where I look at big dreams, goals is. I just think there's such a tragedy in what I observe in so many people's lives, just real uh, objectively scanning culturally that it's reduced to um, a culture of consumption. It's a reduced to a culture of drama and that, and then there's just this kind of apathy, disillusionment, and being checked out. And this morning, I was cutting a strawberry and looking at it and thinking, like, fast forward, if, if some of those sci-fi movies are true, and there may be a day where strawberries are not, like, easily accessible. And, like, I'll just admit, like, the pandemic stuff and wildfires in Colorado and political unrest and social unrest and racial unrest. Like it just has me thinking sometimes like, man, some of that sci-fi movie stuff may not be so outlandish. And I hope it's not, I hope it is. I hope it's just story and fiction. However, um, when I look at the life that we actually have on the planet that we have, um, and for me rooted in a life with God that I have, like a strawberry is kind of fascinating at moments. Like, wow, look at this. It really grows. Like there really are like whales with unicorn horns on them, you know, narwhals. Like, are you serious? There's really zebras and giraffes. And there's these mountains that are outside my back door. Um, And then there's Netflix. (laughs) There's all you can eat Costco. And I'm like, I think I'm going to opt for mystery and wonder and curiosity and exploration. And, and I'm going to go there to go find things to inspire me to live well back here. Because I don't find, I find the people inspiring very often. 
but I don't find culturally what's advertised as this question of where do you find life? Um, I don't find a lot of life on, um, on TV. I watch TV and movies. I like, I love movies, but I just don't find this, like what's sent to us as if you follow these scripts, it will equal more life. I just find it pretty um, disheartening. And then I watch the byproducts of a lot of people's lives and compare that and say, you know, what? I think there's some cool stuff that's waiting out there on a triathlon course that maybe I could discover about myself along the way. And maybe in climbing mountains and maybe in writing a book, but they're all really challenging and they're all like uh, riddled full of moments of doubt. But I find that caught up in a bigger story like that, it helps me gain a better perspective on the whole of my life than just living in a little small life of comfort and predictability. That in itself, unfortunately, is contrarian to the, the popular way of, of living and the or let's say common way of living right now. Um, you mentioned in the book being a little bit of a rascal growing up, you know, and, and that seems like it's still echoed in, in a different way, right? A productive way. Um, you mentioned the idea of heretic. You actually mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, Oprah, Steve Jobs, the, the Gandhi, et cetera, and doing things differently to, to get the results that are actually desired. Do you have a favorite heretic, by the way? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, definitely Steve Jobs. Um, Steve Jobs is one. Um, what I found fascinating about Steve Jobs was not so much his human, um, his relational skills, I didn't find so fascinating. <laughs> sure. Um, but what I did find fascinating was his provocative fierceness to questions like, Simple simplicity in questions to me, I just found like, wow. So one of them was, you know, a thousand songs in your pocket. That was the basis for the early, um, I don't know, is it iPod? It was the original? IPod. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he, he just said, let's start with something like that. Like, here's what I want. I want a thousand songs in my pocket. And people were like, what? What are you talking about? Like, how could, well, that's a room full of equipment. How could we possibly do that? And he's like, I don't care. That's what I want. That's what we're going to do. And I love those, um, you know, that I put in the book that one of the things that he put was in his world, computers that low cost wins. That's the industry he was in. But what he envisioned as a heretic was design wins. Design, sexy, something that belongs like in a museum. Well, that is like, he's smoking something and actually he probably was, but, um, but they, it's so, I love those kind of people that are willing to say, um, you know, Elon Musk is one that I find interesting these days. My son lives in Los Angeles and he was talking about how Elon wants to solve the traffic problem is I'm, I'm going to build a tunnel. <laughs> yes. Not we're going to build a bigger highway. Or we're going to double stack it. You know, it's the 405 and the 5 and 605. They're nightmare highways. You're like, no, we're going to. So I'm listening to a book right now called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And it's about flying cars and all kinds of other things that are underway. So those questions I find 
um, similar to these kinds of questions we're asking about life and about work and about impact, which are, where is life? Sustainable life. And where do you actually find it? And whose responsibility is it? And what must it be rooted in? So back to your question about meaning and purpose, all of this for me wraps into these questions about, and, and what's my life really about? And what am I here to do? And is it ashes to ashes and dust to dust? Or is there something more going on here? And if so, then how can I tap into the more? And so again, for me, that's deeply rooted in a life with God so that I can then in turn, hopefully my intention is to give it away, to then provide back with generosity and grace. Here are the things I found. Try them on yourself. It's not a prescription, but it is an invitation to take a journey to explore your own interior life, to prioritize your inner work um, on equal with your outer work so that you can maximize both and actually have more peace, joy, freedom, intimacy, connection, meaning, and purpose in your life. I love it. Better questions get you better direction and focus. Even if you don't have the answer, it's the, it's the search. That's part of that, which is, you know, also part of a conversation like we're having now, you got to have with yourself, have with, with God. Can you, can you think back over over your life? Kind of last question, quote unquote. Maybe we'll say, um, is there a question or a conversation that you would say that has impacted you the most, or made a significant contribution on the ultimate uh, destination or direction of your life? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, a couple come to mind. Let me let me ponder for a second. Which one would be most serving? I think one stands out just right now in the moment is I had a conversation with a buddy of mine while I was early in the beginnings of this fire your boss story, living it out. And one of the things that he had said is I, I didn't realize at the time, but he, he asked me, he said, you know, you've been really successful up until this point, but by enduring hardship, of whether at, uh, in your personal life or in your career life. And if you've been this successful being this miserable, think of how great you do and be if you could choose to be in an environment place that you could actually thrive. And it was really like perplexing of like, hold on, what? And what he was exposing um, was less about the place I worked or what was happening. And it was, again, back to these deeper questions of how much of my life work, my outlook, call it a mindset, my lenses, the goggles I put on every day through which I view the world, how much of those were in a prevention mindset, trying to prevent bad things from happening or managing um, people and things and circumstances in my life to try and kind of line up enough. You know, it reminds me of like the in Vegas when you pull those slot machines and you're trying to get all cherries to line up. Yeah. Um, 
versus the idea of um, there's a mindset called promotion or, or um, causation, where you're actually instead of managing and prevention, you're actually causing and promoting good things. And what I could tell from that question was kind of like the string that unraveled other things for me was how much of my life I had spent in energy towards prevention. I'm trying to prevent bad things from happening versus causing good things to happen. And one is feels much riskier, especially at the time it did of like, if I put all of my energy, focus, attention, you know, time, resources, prayers, whatever you want to call it towards causing something good to happen. Well, that is risk because you don't know if it will versus I'd realize how much time I had spent towards the prevention of the next bad thing. And it felt like an equation that I'd learned through patterns in life to just make sure I, Hey, I don't want to feel that pain again that I felt last time. So maybe I could prevent the next one. And it just ended up being a loop. And I find that a, that's actually shared by a lot of people that it's much easier and sensible even to spend energy time, you know, towards prevention versus causation. And that was a big, huge shift for me and, and still something I'm experimenting with and finding new ways, but definitely for us, what's really amazing about the world that we do live in is um, there's a blinking cursor as Rob Bell says of our life that's just sitting there waiting for us. And, and the invitation is what are we going to do with it? What are we going to write? And in the book I wrote about um, there's a Walt Whitman quote about the powerful play goes on. And what will your verse be? What verse will you contribute? And so to me, that's a more inviting question is what will my verse be? What will I choose to cause? Excellent. A ton of content and information to think about. Thank you so much, Aaron, for being here on the show, sharing your insights and your wisdom. What is the best way for people to uh, connect with you, find out more about the work that you do and to stay in touch? Yeah, AaronMcHugh.com or Work Life Play podcast, either of those. So if you type in Work Life Play, you'll find me. Type in Aaron McHugh, M-C-H-U-G-H, you'll find me. Yeah, and there's everything from a couple hundred podcasts to um, free download guides and everything from road trip guides to how to keep going um, and learning to pace yourself in life. Yeah, and my book is on Amazon, wherever you find books um, in audible form as well. I'll put links to all those in the show notes. Again, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, man. It's great. And thank you all for listening. And until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. For more tools to engage, inspire, and empower yourself and others, visit keycombo.com slash free. If you haven't already, you can connect with me on Twitter at Key Combo or on LinkedIn under John Ryan Leadership.